Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. This conversation was recorded from a Zoom webinar. Good morning, Vietnam, as Robin Williams said. Uh, you know, here we are in a time uh, that uh, looks a lot like, uh, what can I say? It looks, uh, as Bill Gates said the other day, it's like a world war, but we're all on the same side. And um, so here we all are in the middle of this extraordinary experience, and I'm here with my beloved friend and colleague, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen. Uh, Rachel, do you want to say hi to everybody? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Commonweal. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, I'm, I'm not going to even try to introduce you completely, so this will be a, uh, a personal introduction. Um, we met about... <laughs> Uh, I want to say 35, 36 years ago, uh, Commonweal had uh, at that moment uh, collapsed and I'd had to lay off the entire staff, including myself. And I was uh, consulting in order to make a living with a wonderful eccentric uh, dentist who wanted to do a program at the University of California, San Francisco. And you and I were, came together with this group that was consulting with him. And we were sitting in a cafe in, where was it? Oh, it was in San Francisco on near Market Street. Near Market Street. Yeah, in Lenoi, in the Lenoi Valley. Yeah, and uh, so uh, everybody was talking, and then you and I began talking. And we looked up an hour later, and everybody else had left. <laughs> and they'd eaten and left, too. They'd eaten and left. <laughs> And so I began to share with you my thought, my hope of creating a retreat program for cancer patients. And I'm trying to remember exactly what you said, but you listened for a while and I think you said something like, well, let's do it. Something like that. Well, do you remember I, what you said? Yeah, I do. I asked you when when you wanted to do this. You said, "Oh, you're going to do this," and I said, "Well, how about tomorrow?" <laughs> <laughs> right. And at the time, I was working on a houseboat. My office was a storage closet <laughs> houseboat in Sausalito, and I was seeing um, people with cancer and their families. And the reason I was seeing them is most doctors um, didn't felt they had nothing more to, that they could offer them because they had run out of therapy, and so there was nothing they could say or do to help. And they were very uncomfortable with these patients. And these were the people I wanted to talk to. So I had this whole practice with dogs and cats and stuffed animals and the boats and the seagulls and all this stuff, and I had all these people. So we could have done it tomorrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, how funny. It is funny. You remember saying to me something like this? Uh, you asked me if we could work together on this, and I said, sure. And then you said, but first we have to decide how we're going to part. <laughs> right. <laughs> how we're going to end the relationship. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And you know, 
we haven't figured it out yet. Right? No, we <laughs> One of these days. So yeah, and so Rachel Naomi Remen is the medical director of the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program and has been for the last 34 years. Uh, we did many of the early retreats, co-directing them together. Uh, we did the Bill Moyers uh, Healing in the Mind uh, retreat together and uh, Bill Moyers' book and uh, his PBS series uh, featured the Cancer Help Program. Uh, your books, um, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings have been translated in, what is it, a hundred languages? Or no, something? no, no, 23. Some, oh, 23 <laughs> languages. Your course, which started at Commonweal, uh, the Healer's Art course, which is taught at UCSF. Now that is in something like a hundred medical schools around the world. It's in the majority of medical schools in the United States. Something yeah. like 32,000 medical students have completed this course right. in a mere 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still very active at University of California, San Francisco. Um, and so uh, we've had this long and wonderful friendship, and I celebrate the fact that we're both still here. <laughs> so, uh, Rachel, I wondered, um, here we are in this extraordinary period of time, and I wondered if, if you would just start with a few reflections on how you're holding this period of time. This is a a time of great discovery for everybody, for the country as a whole, but for every single individual. Um, it's a time when um, our perceptions uh, have radically and rapidly changed uh, and our behaviors and our, our daily experience has radically changed as well. And, uh, you know, being able to talk to people, and the change is a very interesting one. Uh, I myself find myself, I've fallen in love with my house. I mean, my house is just so, I'm so lucky to have this house. And I did not know that. And all my relationships with other people have changed. My whole idea of the American way of being independent and never needing anything from anybody, when you need something from somebody, you're imposing on them, all of that, that sort of all just fell away in this experience of being, um, taking shelter, taking shelter. And the interesting thing is not only are we taking shelter in our homes, we're taking shelter in each other. And what an un-American thing to do. We are supposed to be independent, we're not supposed to be needy, stand on your own two feet. And somehow or other, people are giving me things. I mean, I had a funny experience. My, my cousin um, is a, a nurse practitioner and a, a person who has a very important position in Kaiser, Oakland. And they ran out of toilet paper <laughs> at the house. Uh, she lives near me, and she she went to the Safeway, and she's and she's in a hurry because she's going to to work at Kaiser in Oakland, and she's running for the the the, the Safeway, and a man comes out with a shopping cart with four large packages of toilet paper in it, and thinking to solve time, you know, save save some time, she says to him, 
oh, oh, great. Where, where, do, where, where is that in the store? And he says, oh, it's all gone. And she stops and you know, he keeps on going and she says, oh my God, well. And so she turns around and starts walking back to her car. And she, just before she reaches the car, she hears someone calling, lady, lady, lady. And she turns around and it's this guy. And he's running across the parking lot carrying a, a big batch of toilet paper in his arms. And he says to her, he hands it to her and he says, this is for you. And then he turns and runs back to his car and gets in and drives away. Now, that sounds like a really, you know, prosaic, if not funny happening. But that is such a radical change in the way that we deal with one another, the way we see one another. Um, this difference, and it's a difference in a certain direction. And I, I, I know this whole thing started that we we're here together, is that I began talking to you about some of my thoughts as to what this thing represents. Um, and I'd like to just share some of that with, with you again and with others. You know, my grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi, is a mystic. Um, and I'm, I'm a mystic. I'm a mystic by nature, I think. And his ideas about things were very different. And I remember him talking to me about the Messiah. Now, um, when you see Messiah in our, our, our world culture, one thinks of, of, of the Christ and the, the embodiment of the Messiah being a human being, a person. But my grandfather was less concrete than that. And in Judaism also, you know, the Messiah is a, is a person, it's a, it's a man. Uh, the Messiah in his, in his idea could be an event. It could be a happening that affected every single human being and that it would cause a shift in people's perception, in their behavior, in their sense of purpose, um, that nobody was exempt from, that there would be a shift and it would move life. It's a, it, he thought of it as a correction, as like a, a reset button that if the human race was moving in a certain direction that was not life-affirming, uh, that the values by which people lived and the, the way they related to themselves, to the others, the way they saw themselves was um, not, not a life-affirming um, way, that a, a global event could happen that would reset that, those values, that would reset those values. Um, and that this is a messianic event. And I found myself remembering this um, and thinking that this, this could be thought of in, in just that way, what's been happening, that it is messianic, that every single person is, is touched by it, changed by it. In many perceptions, 
and many experiences, many behaviors that even though they're new, they feel natural. They feel in some way authentic, authentic. Um, and that we've been freed of beliefs and perceptions and roles that have crippled us. Um, and it's almost like um, there's, a, if you think of the human race as a mighty river and it's flowing in its riverbed. And in two months, there's been an event that has shifted the flow into a new riverbed and a new direction. And the question that I have in my mind is, um, is this a permanent change? And I think in some ways it may be. People seem very surprised to discover something that they always knew was true. I've done a lot of, you know, um, Zoom conferences where you're actually talking to 30 people, doing a, like a Finding Meaning in Medicine group online. And people are talking about things that they have discovered that they already knew, but never lived by, never, never embodied. And, you know, one of the questions that people ask is, you know, has this ever happened before? This is unique. It's not unique. It, it's unique in, in, you know, in world history. I mean, there's the Black Plague and, you know, there's all that sort of thing. And by the way, our response to this coronavirus is exactly the response that they had in the 13th century. You quarantine, you wear masks. It stripped us of, of our science even. And we just have this simple human response. Um, before I say that, there was something else I wanted to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, more about this, this change in behavior, um, like wearing masks, wearing masks. That's uh, so symbolic. You think you'd be hiding your face, you're, you're wearing a mask. But that's not why we're wearing them. We've been told over and over, we're not protecting ourselves. We're not hiding ourselves. We are there to protect others. We're wearing this mask because we can harm other people. And I see, you know, when I go outside, everybody's wearing a mask. We can harm other people. And you know, that realization that you have the power to kill somebody else, emotionally, physically even, right? And you take responsibility for not lighting the life of another person, that realization alone is enormous as a cultural realization. And when I see all these people like in the Safeway walking around with their masks on, and I know that this is because of me that they're wearing their masks. And I find when someone comes close to me, you know, I'll go back, 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 back. But I'm not thinking about protecting myself when I do that. I'm thinking about protecting them. You're back, 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 you're too close, you're too close. So I have a sense of my efficacy, my power 
which is very realistic. And my wish to use that power in a way that does not blight the life of another person. If the entire culture operates off just that principle, we have a huge change in the world. Huge, huge. Because when you do that, you see the other person, no matter what color they are, how old they are, they are another fellow human being. And you are responsible for their lives in the same way they're responsible for yours. Huge, huge symbolic thing. Let me just say a few things uh, now. Uh, first of all, wonderful uh, questions and comments. Um, I'm just going to read uh, from Peter Whitehouse, our friend. Rachel, do you see parallels with other shifts, the Renaissance? Uh, I and others are calling the emerging era cosmodernity. We are emerging from modernity through postmodernism to the cosmos coming back into our lives, the reenchantment. Um, so that's a beautiful line. I, I, I want to say a few things that I've been thinking about coming into this. Um, the first thing I want to say is I, there are images, and one image for me is the lines of cars or people waiting for food banks and farmers plowing crops back into the ground or spilling thousands of gallons of milk into the river. Or in other words, there's this radical disconnect between the, the physical need for food in the United States uh, of the millions of people thrown out of work and we can't get them the food that's being plowed back into the ground or the milk or the hogs that are being euthanized and we can't. And so the radical discontinuity between the need for this and uh, the inability to get it to the people who need it uh, because it's not mediated through the restaurants and so on. So that's one image. Another image, uh, comes from uh, the global south. Uh, uh, just uh, a friend of mine was telling me about a, a film on French television about um, uh, poor people in India, in the slums of Indian cities, who are trying to get back to their villages and uh, being beaten by the police and so forth and setting forth on journeys of 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers to their villages with no food or water. And the interviewer asks them, do you think you'll make it? And this young man calmly says, I don't know if I'll make it or not. You know, I may die on the journey. And so there's this global experience. You've been talking about the experience in the United States, but there's this global experience where uh, probably millions of people will die, and, and, but not of COVID. In addition to all those who will die of COVID, they will die of hunger or other diseases. And they will die because um, in our effort to protect ourselves, uh, who have the privilege of protecting ourselves, 
uh, we've closed down the global economy and closing down the global economy is going to cause a lot of people to die. So, so I'm holding that dimension of this event. Um, a second thing that really has come to me frequently, it's a line from Aurobindo, who you and I both know his extraordinary work. He was a contemporary of Gandhi. While Gandhi became political, Aurobindo, who spent time in prison for politics in his youth, but he became a spiritual teacher and, and founded Auroville. And it's this line, the future, if there is to be a future, must wear a crown of feminine design. And, you know, that line deeply speaks to me. And, you know, the New York Times this morning, uh, had, I've got it here with me, and uh, it had a, um, it had a uh, editorial that said, in a crisis, true leaders stand out. And there were three global leaders that they picked. Uh, Meta Fredrickson of Denmark, Angela Merkel of Germany, and Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand. All three are women. And so I just have a deep sense, I've actually had this sense, as you know, for a long time, that um, however we describe this event, whether we call it messianic or something else, I think that if there is to be a future worth having, it must wear a crown of feminine design. And so to me, it's the rise of, of the divine mother, the divine, uh, yeah, the divine feminine, uh, Mother Mary, Kuan Yin, Mother Earth, um, and a, a sense of um, that, a sense that, that that is a core dimension of this resetting that is taking place. So what you're saying, I think, is so profound. It's all about reowning our humanity in this time when we feel vulnerable because we're human. We also reown the strength of our full humanity. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. You know, another, another, our friend, uh, another, there are all these different images. So our friend Toby Symington, who's a very capable astrologer, and I talked with him yesterday, and I said, what's going on? And he said, it's a Saturn-Pluto conjunction, a dark night of the soul, an initiatory journey, leaving one world and entering another, an encounter with the shadow, possibility of deep structural change. But then he said, this was so interesting, the Saturn-Pluto conjunction took place at the beginning of World War I, at the beginning of World War II, and when the United States invaded Iraq. So I guess my thought is, I, I may be less sure than you are that of the singularity of the event. Uh, uh, in other words, <clears throat> it seems to me there have been other events, these world wars and so forth, that were similarly powerful. What is new, what is unique, is the complete uh, 
wiring of the whole world into a single financial, economic, cultural communication system. And with this virus being a pandemic, uh, it elicits profoundly dysfunctional responses and it lays bare all of the profound uh, contradictions of our whole global system. And so it seems to me what is new is not the power of the event, but the power of the, the global system and its dysfunction as it struggles to figure out how to deal with this. How to live. Yeah, exactly. And that's the issue. Exactly. How to, how to make money or how to be, right. how, how do we live exactly. is the question that's in yeah. front of everybody. And the answer to that is not theoretical. No. The answer to that is very, very close to our daily experience and our humanity. Uh, and by the way, this business of, you know, a lot of people say this has never happened before on this level, not even the black play, et cetera. Well, it certainly has happened before, but not in modern times. Um, when I first met you, I remember having a conversation with you about uh, images, and you told me there was an image that was very, very valuable to you as a, a little boy, and that was the image of Noah's Ark. That's right. Right. That's one of those times that it happened before. Yeah, I mean, just bringing yeah. that up for a moment. Yeah. When I was a little boy, I, I, I knew the flood was coming. And I began to build a, an ark in the uh, in the garage of our house in outside Southampton. And I collected some turtles from a nearby pond and put them in a little thing. And my mother says, on building the ark, I only got as far as building one window. But the point is, I've had the sense all of my life that the flood was coming. And here the flood seems to have arrived. And you have been building an ark. And I've been building arcs. With a window. Yeah, a window. And, <laughs> right. yeah, you have been building an ark, common with as an ark. Right. Your entire work is an ark. And, you know, in thinking about the flood, when you read about it, you know, the earth was covered in water. And there was this sense that we would have to, if we survived this, we'd have to begin again. We'd have to be, we have to re repopulate the world. This is where the messianic image comes, this sh profound shift. And, and Noah took the animals, the innocence, the life, Right? The people who weren't involved in what, what was evil or dark or off-message, off shall we say, in the room. And he put them into a, a place and he nurtured them and fed them and gave them what they needed so that when the waters went down again, which they always will, mm. we could start again. And this, for me, has been central to my understanding of the work. It goes something uh, of the situation here. It goes something like this. Um, I think just thinking of the values that most people live by, they fall far short of our reach. Our values fall far short. We, we are able to live in ways that are far more 
life-affirming, satisfying, um, well, just holy, if you will, <laughs> right? Um, and each of us in, in this process are discovering qualities in ourselves, like that man in the, with the toilet paper in the, in the parking lot. He, I bet he didn't know he was that generous. <laughs> I mean, he's discovering a natural generosity, a natural sense of wanting to meet the need of another person, right? And these discoveries of, of certain qualities, um, which have not been the qualities we may have nurtured in ourselves in, in, in the postmodern world, qualities like service and compassion and brotherhood and the value of every human life, qualities like courage and unselfishness and truthfulness and love. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. Grown in us by this experience. They're being grown in us. So if each one of us is an ark. Mm, I love that. And these qualities are our pairs of animals. Mm. And one of the things we can do is to become more aware of them, to inhabit them even more fully than we're doing now, more consciously, mm-hmm. to nurture them so that when it's time to repopulate the world, it mm-hmm. isn't the same world. You know, Rachel Redwing uh, just sent us a note, really beautiful. Today, May 1 is a holy day in ancient traditions when the veils between the worlds are thin and we have access to other levels of understanding. No coincidence that Rachel's mysticism is opening us today. Nor is it that it's also a holiday of the workers of the world. May Day blessings to all. Love it. Yeah. Actually, um, access to, what did she say that was beautiful? Access to... Uh, uh, Today, May 1st, is a holy day in ancient traditions when the veils between worlds are thin and we have access to other levels of understanding. Yeah, access to other levels of understanding. And we're not talking about mental understanding. Right. Cognitive, non-cognitive. I think our cognition, with all that it does about projecting into the future and telling us who we are and who other people are, is actually, it's not necessarily a strength. And in a situation like this where... Every life in this world is on the line. Mm -hmm. There's a lovely note from Jan Booth. When things are stripped away, the light shines more clearly on what's broken and what's healing. The man with the toilet paper could perhaps more clearly see what his choices were, what kind of world he wants to live in, and how one simple action in the present moment can help build that world. Exactly. One simple action in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And then another action. And these actions don't come from, well, I think it's smart of me to do this, right? Well, this makes sense, you know, or something like this. It comes from something within us that is profoundly human and profoundly connected. And to me, that is the embodiment of the feminine principle. Rising, you know, right. that. Every human being, no matter what their perceptions are, 
are profoundly connected at the most fundamental levels. That's what we're experiencing in only two months. So that this thing, this reality, was so close to the surface that a month and a half of living in your own house and, and, and people bringing you food and understanding the interdependence, right? We are able to make these kinds of changes. Well, if I, as a therapist, if I could help somebody make that kind of a change after four years of work, I would say, gee, I'm doing great work. And this event is messianic in that sense. When the Messiah comes, you see what it means to be a human being and what your path as a human being, your honorable path that will fulfill you really is, really is. Extraordinary. Gretchen Schode, our friend from Harmony Hill wrote, I have been experiencing the veils being thin, dreams, awareness, those past and not yet born seem to flow freely in these times. Um, I wanted to um, I wanted to bring in um, that my sense in these moments is there is the potential to move toward light and wholeness, and there's also the potential to move toward darkness. And by darkness, I don't mean dark. Darkness can be creative, and but in the metaphor we're using right now, or to not even use light dark, we can move toward. Uh, inhabiting our our uh, our better selves, but we can also move in the other direction. And it seems to me the question is very very open as to which of those directions we will take. You know, it's often true in catastrophes that at first there's a coming together, but as as time wears on, as people get desperate, it doesn't always hold. And so it seems to me we need to be careful, even as we envision what is possible to also be aware that we're just at the beginning of this and that the, there are so many different ways it can unfold. I actually believe it's not either or. I believe that in different places with different people, it will unfold in different ways. And I, I believe that we will see both um, immense callousness and cruelty and at the same time, immense um, compassion. And I do believe that um, there will be an enormous upwelling of, um, of commitment to, uh, to a better world. I, I really believe that to be true. But I believe it will be a contest between that upwelling and an equal upwelling of callousness and selfishness and all of those things. Well, yes. Um... There's choice involvement. Right. Yeah. Uh, choice at a very different level. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's so interesting. Um, our country is a very interesting country. And, and, you know, we've accepted this mm -hmm. without reflection. Um, the, one of the first things that happened when, when this be, it became apparent what was going on is that the sales of ammunition were way up. <laughs> People mm -hmm. ran out and bought bullets. Mm -hmm. First they ran to buy toilet paper, then they ran to buy bullets. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And those are the two um, dimensions of things. Um, Hirohito, I'm old enough to remember World War II. I was about mm -hmm. five. Mm -hmm. um, Hirohito said, uh, they, they had interviewed him at one point and said, well, how come he never attacked America? As it was well within their capacity to do so. How come they never attacked America? And he said, oh, you would never want to bring the battle to the American homeland. There's a a gun behind every blade of grass there. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. We're shooting up kids in the schools. I mean, we've gotten to this level. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and yes, it is a moment of decision. But the thing that is so interesting is that we have a different experience to throw into that mix. It's not a theoretical decision. We have had a different experience as a human race. I mean, everybody has very clear how many people died today. You know? One of the uh, mystical traditions that you and I have both studied in our long friendship, you had studied it far earlier than I had because it was background to your deep engagement with psychosynthesis, is the esoteric work of Alice Bailey, the so-called Bailey work. And there's a piece of that that's been coming up. There are many pieces of that that I don't agree with, but the piece that comes up for me at a time when people are trying to divide us as a strategy for whatever they are trying to achieve, is her sense that in every community around the world, there are world servers. There are people everywhere who are devoted to service to life. And I really hold that to be true. I really hold that in every tradition, in every culture, no matter how estranged we may be from its exoteric values or presentation, there is a core in every culture, and I would say in every human being, but in every culture where there are some people who are simply devoted to the evolution of humanity in, in whatever way, but small local ways. But, and it seems to me that in these uh, times of crisis, that what is elicited is in our time, not only the divine feminine, but also that impulse within us um, to be of service, to be of service to that which is greater than we are. Um, and uh, so I just sort of bring that forward because it seems very aligned with what Well, you know, these are, um, it's not like either you or I are saying it's going to be a different, better world, really. Hmm. What we're saying is that there is a universal experience that is profound for almost every human being alive today and it changes your eyes it changes the way you see everything um i have been humbled by how much i have taken for granted 
and how much gratitude I have for my life and for this, this computer and for these two cats who are my companions on the ark. <laughs> By the way, your cats have been visiting during the... Well, have they? <laughs> and somebody wrote, it's not a webinar until the cat shows up. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know they're, they're fundamental they're, they're, they eat, they sleep they need to be close they need to know that they're loved and you know I'm not so different I'm not, in fact I'm not different at all I just have several layers of, of other stuff that has gotten between me and their honesty mm. their honesty yeah. you know I was talking to a group of doctors, and I'd like to just talk about medicine for a little bit. And just because everyone's work has changed, everyone's perception of their work and the value of their work, and all of that has changed. The medical thing is, is phenomenal. But I was sitting here, and suddenly I realized there was a cat sitting next to me. And as I turned to her, she just took her, her, her nose and put it on my cheek, like this, mm. right in the middle of the floor. And, you know, I said, yeah, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. You know, just Rachel, you do a lot of work uh, with physicians and other healthcare professionals. And um, let me start with a broader point and then come into that one. Yeah. One thing this virus does is it it shifts our relationship with death for almost any thoughtful human being uh, because you know usually we think well maybe we will develop some chronic illness or we have one but we have some sense of where we are in our trajectory and we usually have a sense of of time ahead at least theoretically being available here we are suddenly and any of us can be a week from dying, a week from dying, and not only a week from dying, but a week from a, a very difficult death if we don't get the right medicines at the right time to help us ease our way out. And so um, to me, I mean, this reminds me of when I had a heart opening, as I call it, a cardiac event about 14 years ago, and other times when I've felt close to death. Um, and, and clearly, you know this as well as I do, there, there is the potential for an opening intrinsic to that experience. So all of a sudden, we have the whole world experiencing this uh, proximity of our own potential death. And so that in itself is an enormous uh, call to awakening or to asking ourselves what matters, what is our sense of purpose. So coming back to the, the physicians that you work with, nowhere is that more acute than in all our friends. Uh, you know, my brother in Boston is an oncologist on the front lines. Uh, all our friends who daily are putting themselves and their families at acute risk. What are you learning and hearing from them? And what are your broader reflections on this encounter with the proximity of death? 
Well, it isn't, this is nothing new for doctors to be in the proximity of death. But what it's very, very new to be in that situation at this level, at this level, as also very, many, many doctors have literally stopped their usual doctoring life. There are no elective surgeries happening. There are no medical visits that aren't urgent happening. Uh, many doctors are sitting at home, you know, just like, like you and I are. And we have a program called Finding Meaning in Medicine, which is where we, it's very it's similar to your healing circles, I think. Um, you take a, a, a topic and people come and they tell stories um, about their experience of the topic in their work. And the topic could be anything like uh, honesty or a surprise or whatever, anything. Um, and we're doing these things online. And the course that's in all these medical schools has a director. Everyone, every school has a director. I know their names. I've never seen their faces other than once when they came to a training a couple of years ago. Well, the screen is full of these little, little postage stamps, right? And there are people from all of the United States, from Australia and Canada and Europe on the screen. And they're talking about doctoring in this situation. And what they're saying is extraordinary. And you know, they, they develop it as they're saying, they'll say something like this. I realize I'm sitting here at home, you know, I, I miss my colleagues. You know, that the hospital is usually, you know, it's a place of you know, pretty competitive people. Competitive people, ambitious people, people, you know, putting themselves ahead. People wearing masks. We 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 wear masks all the time, not to protect other people from ourselves, but to 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 project a person who we we are not really there even. And you know, here as I sit at home, I realize when I, I have a meeting on, on my, my my computer with with people from my work, and I say, I realize how much I miss them, how much I miss them, and how much I actually love them. And how I'm, how much I love the work, and how how deeply I hope that they are safe, and how important they are to me, and I did not know this. Mm. Um, there's also this business of the Hippocratic Oath. A lot of um, thinking about the Hippocratic Oath, and if I can share something about it, and then the kind of thinking that's going mm -hmm. on. Please. Um, the Hippocratic Oath is the first thing that doctors say in the 10 seconds after you get your degree. And this is pre pretty much true all over the world. All over the world. You get your degree, it's conferred on you, and you take your tassel and you go like this, and you move it to the other side of your, your, uh, your hat. And the, the degree of doctor of medicine is conferred upon you. And this is the culmination of 10, 12 years of advanced study, right? And then the very next thing that happens is the entire class says the Hippocratic Oath or one of the other versions of it together, right? Mm -hmm. And I can remember this moment, most doctors can. Um, I was in New York City in a very large movie theater 
and there were a thousand people in the audience. And we the, the degree was conferred, and I was like stunned by how, how powerful a moment this was. And our dean stood up and he said, Would every would the class please stand? And we all stood. And then he said, Would every doctor in this audience stand up? And all the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and cousins and grandpas and grandmas stood up. And we all said the oath together. An incredible moment. And you know, I had a sense of purpose and of a commitment to purpose. I was ready to commit my daily life to this purpose. But I hadn't realized how deep that commitment goes. And and thinking about this, I remember something from my own family. I had two uncles who were at Iwo Jima in World War II, which was a terrific battle. I think it was something like 27,000 Japanese were killed in that battle and 9,000 American soldiers, some huge numbers. And there was a battle in the war where a battalion climbed a ridge and they had gotten bad information. Mm-hmm. And um, the enemy was across the, and the enemy opened fire and kept live fire going over the ground at that ridge that the battalion was on, three feet above the, the ground itself. And they kept it up for two days. And hundreds of men went down and they stayed down. And my uncles were doctors. And, and they were they were at the bottom of the hill because he always followed the army. He didn't lead the army. And the doctor said, "Well, they couldn't go up there because they were firing, you know, two two three feet over the, above the ground. You know, they had to wait until they stopped firing, but they didn't stop firing." And my uncle Joe was this kind of a little pot-bellied man, and he wore wire glasses and. He was bald. He's not a very impressive man. And he heard this conversation and then he realized that he was going. And he crawled on across that ridge for two days, tying up bleeders of splinting legs, taking messages for beloved ones, collecting wedding rings and keeping records of blessing the dying as best as he could, right, for two days. So he came back and, you know, he was a little fluffle about it and he got a medal, you know, for, from, from the government and all of this. And then he came to see me and I was thrilled, you know, because I, at the time, I, I was not, I was a timid child, right? And I, I said, and I had sort of a little pot-bellied, balding man, I said, Uncle, Uncle Joe, you must be the bravest person, but you're not afraid of anything. And he laughed and he said, oh, I'm afraid of everything. I mean, they were firing guns over the ground. Of course, everybody would be afraid. But brave people do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that point. Now, now, let me say that. It never occurred to me. I thought he went up there and did that 
because he, and I was blown away because I was afraid of the dark at that time. And that I could be a brave person and afraid of the dark. I mean, it changed everything. It changed my whole life. There's this one statement in a funny way. But I had thought he had gone up there because he was a soldier. It never occurred to me that he went up there because he was a doctor. That the Hippocratic Oath is about committing your life. And this has struck a lot of people. And many people have been shocked by it. And other people have realized that they really had made that commitment without noticing. That when we all stood up in that theater and, and said these, these old, old words, we were committing our lives. And this has changed a great deal about how people, how doctors see each other, how we feel about our frontline people, how in a way we're there with them in the front line. People have started praying for their fellow doctors. I mean, this is like a revolution in our profession. Yeah. Um, and when I say doctors, this is true of, of course, nurses. This is true of all the all the health professions. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. There's one one person wrote a question that I think is really important to try to respond to. And, and she said, um, what advice do you have for people who feel alone, isolated, anxious, and deeply afraid? Um, what, what, yeah, how, how would you counsel someone in, who's feeling those very, very human feelings? Well, that's a hard question because it isn't one size fits all. Right. Um, I do. I'm not able to answer that because it's too. It's I could. I could. Too abstract. Yeah. No, that's um, fair. That's fair. I think. I think there may be something akin a hint in your story about your Uncle Joe, uh, that um, I can say for myself that um, I can experience anxiety about this. I can experience fear about it. I love life. I want to stay alive. But I just somehow I'm able to choose not to let that be my predominant response. You know, it's 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 somehow finding in myself the ability to move toward this in some fundamental way. And I think partly for me, it's that, um, and I know people are very different about this, but I am not afraid to die. Um, my concern is that given that this moves very quickly, I am concerned not only for myself, but for millions of other people 
that they won't if if we are to die that we won't get the uh medicines we need to make that um a death with compassion and dignity that is a tremendous concern for me and i must say uh, the whole focus on you know do we have enough ventilators um the truth of the matter is that an awful lot of people who are that sick and go on ventilators are not going to make it. Yeah. So again, we come back to our own encounter with death. And uh, and we both know from the Cancer Health Program and you know all the retreats we've done there that many people are less afraid of death than they are of uh, sort of intractable suffering of one kind or another. And or being alone. And Excuse there's me? the other piece of this is that many people are dying. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I find myself um, not only in deep reflection, but in deep reflection on a civilization which in the efforts to safeguard us from ourselves has made it almost impossible to get the medicines that one would need um, in a timely way, because this thing moves so fast, you know? So anyway, I'm just, I'm sitting with these different questions, but um, it's but not the proximity of my death that is causes my fear. It's not knowing whether I would get the medicines that I would need to die in the way I would choose to die. A long time ago, I was at a um, meeting with our friend Marion, um, and we went together to, to have a, yeah. I guess a, it was a, a small, intimate meeting of about 400 people um, with the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. And he said something um, to us at lunch, which I thought was remarkable. He said, I sit at the table of unknowing and I invite you, I welcome you to join me there. And Marion in her wisdom has found that a very important moment for her. We're always at the table of unknowing. And you know, usually we deny that we're there. And right now, we are as there as the people back in the 13th century. They dealt with the same that they dealt with in quarantine, which is the 40 days that sailors had to stay on ship before they could come on land because they might have the plague or whatever. Right? We're dealing with it without our science. That's another interesting dimension of this. Our way of dealing with death is that we're going to control it. And we're going to put it as far away from us as we can. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. And the reality is living with death and as a person with a significant chronic illness that I've lived with for 65 years, um, there's nothing that can heighten your joy in life more than this. Mm -hmm. And so in talking to someone who is afraid, it's the opposite side of a coin. And going deeper into the fear and saying, what is it 
that you are afraid of losing? And how do you celebrate the fact that you haven't lost it yet? You know, that, that's how these, these things have a tendency to flip. The, the depth of your anxiety is the depth of your valuing of life. And if you were to step into that valuing and make that a part of your daily life, that you woke up every morning and said, oh, I'm here. Hallelujah. Right? What would that look like? And the profoundness of the anxiety is exactly equal to the profoundness of someone's love of life and being alive. Most people don't know they love life. Hmm. Yeah. So there's so many interesting questions and comments. Uh, somebody said, repeat, sitting at the table of what? The table of unknowing was what? His Holiness died. Kathleen O'Day says it seems to be like moving with cancer. The fear is profound, and yet we rise every day, and for that day, choose life and hope. Um, and um, just looking for other. Uh, thinking about how deeply that commitment of physicians run. I think about and pray for Dr. Lorna Breen, who was so overwhelmed by those she couldn't save, she took her own life rather than be unable to save anymore. The vows we take are powerful. And so I am also reminded of how important and powerful the Kol Nidra, the renunciation of the vows we cannot keep is. It releases us from what is not possible. That's kind of lovely. Um, but you know, in a funny way, we go around so unconscious that we release ourselves from what is possible. Yes. Right? Yeah. And um, there are certain things that we just can't have, certain certainties that it's just not the way the world works. But we need to take hold of the things we do have yeah. fully. I think one thing that really comes to me about this is, um, you know, one of my friends talks about how often in, in healing work, we, we stay in the wound. Uh, you know, in other words, we've done a lot of work, both you and I, with, with wounds and how wounds are not only a wound, but an opening and, and all of that exploration. But there's also sometimes a tendency to stay in the wound and not move forward into a sense of purpose that lies beyond the wound. Um, and or it may have been contained in the wound, but in but somehow moving into purpose goes beyond it. and um, and I just have a tremendous sense of the opportunities of this period of time. Yeah. That um, this is the time where fundamental choices will be made, not individually only, but also collectively, about how this uh, messianic movement moment will, will turn out. And um, I think I just feel in myself a kind of a, 
a, a deepening of the commitment that, yeah, here's how I would say it. Um, I want to live this period of time uh, the way I would like to live this period of time. I, I want to be the person that I would like to be in this time. I remember in the Cancer Health Program, there was this young mother with two very young children, metastatic breast cancer. And she was terrified of death and just grieving that her two babies would be left without a mother. And in the evening we do on death and dying, she was giving voice to this. And I listened to her and I said, you know, I can't change that, but ask yourself this, how would you like your children to remember you during this period of time? Would you like them to remember you as grief-stricken and just, you know, uh, afraid and, and all of those things? Or would you like them to remember you as being so present and so, you know, loving for them? And it's as if a switch shifted, you know, she just got it in a moment that this, that, she, that what she could give her children was this period of time, however long it might be. And so it seems to me that, that all of us who feel anxiety or fear at some level, that we have that choice before us, that we don't know how long we'll be here, uh, particularly those of us who are older, uh, but none of us know. Um, you know, one of the things that's happening with this virus, as you well know, is that the news about what the virus can do keeps getting worse. I mean, it, you know, first of all, it just seemed a lung condition, and then it's inflamed heart, it's kidney dysfunction, it's all kinds of things. It manifests in so many different ways. And so that growing body of, uh, of knowledge about all the bad things it can do amps up the anxiety and the fear even further. So the need to find a way in the face of the media and all the bad news to live as we would choose to live and to go beyond the wound and into a sense of purpose seems very deep to me. The thing that I think is so extraordinary about this is that I believe is a natural process that to start from a place of fear and terror and protectiveness and, you know, let's lock the doors, shut the windows, right, etc. To saying to yourself, how do I, how do I live? And how do I make my life as personal as my signature? And what really matters does it really matter how much I'm in, uh, how much money I have in the bank, or is something else that I've taken for granted much more important than that? And this natural process, this is why I think of it as messianic. Okay. Is I don't think anyone. Some people have done this just a little bit. Some people have done this radically. And remember, we're not done yet. There's going to be more. It, this is this is not all going to be over in June. <laughs> this is going to be over when it's over. 
And I don't think any of us will be the same person, whether we've made small decisions or very large decisions. Um, we will discover what decisions, what life really belongs to us and not living the life our parents meant for us, the life our partner wishes us to have, the life we thought we we're supposed to have, but living the life we've been given as a unique individual. And yes, I mean, there's a certain amount of discussion going on as, well, let's just open up the boundaries and all the old people will die. Who needs them anyway? They're not really contributing members of society, right? And why should the, the benefit of these most vulnerable people be the, our consideration? I mean, we just sacrifice them and move forward. There are all kinds of you know various things coming forward. But I think in the majority of people's lives, if that's what they believe most of their life, they are thinking about that now for the first time and what that really means. Redwing writes, Rilke told us love and death are the great gifts that are given to us. Mostly they are passed on unopened. Isn't that a beautiful line? That's beautiful. <laughs> um, yes, People focus on the higher mortality of old people, which is very real. What they don't focus on, uh, a friend told me the other day, is that something like 60% of the people in hospital with serious illnesses are younger people. Younger people, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and, and then uh, there are all kinds of things, even if you survive, that people end up quite compromised. The other thing I want to mention, because as you know, uh, I've been working for years on resilience questions. And the thing about this virus is if we were to treat it as a one-off, you know, that we have this virus and we're all going to mobilize and we'll have a vaccine and we'll have medicines and we'll get back to normal. We're not coming back to normal, whatever normal was. And um, there's a way in which Many of us who work on resilience, in other words, they're, depending on how you count, two, different, two dozen different global stressors that have created a bottleneck for all of biodiversity and human life, and only a part of what we now have in the world as life and humanity is going to make it through this bottleneck. Um, so there's a way in which the virus is a preview of coming attractions. It is... Uh, it is you know, the, the global shocks keep getting closer together and they are more and more intertwined. And so maybe we'll get fortunate and have a smooth sail for a while, but we can't change the bottleneck that biodiversity is known to face where only a portion of biodiversity will make it through. And we know for a fact that since humanity is part of biodiversity, only a portion of humanity is going to make it through. So coming back to Noah's Ark, the question is, what are we hoping makes it through that bottleneck? You know, yes. what are we intending? Because humanity, I suspect humanity will survive in some form. But what form? You know, will we have the awareness that our choice uh, moves us toward a humanity and a biodiversity resurgent on the other side of the bottleneck 
that says, yes, we learned the lessons. You know, we came through this and learned the lessons. Mm -hmm. So those thoughts come to me. Those thoughts, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, <laughs> we've said this saying to each other forever. May you live in interesting times, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. No. Who knew? <laughs> None of us expected I mean, this to come about while we were here. Um, Peter Whitehouse, Michael and Rachel, your optimistic commitment to life has been and will continue to be a blessing. We need to think of the legacy of COVID and the stories we will write about it. Such narratives will be an entry in the encyclopedia of the universe under the legacy of our species. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it's optimism. No, I, I, exactly. that's interesting. You know, there's a wonderful saying I put before you, this is from the Old Testament. I put before you the choice between life and death the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that isn't just choose comfort. It's choose being alive. And that is the choice that is available to everybody, actually. And no, I know it doesn't matter how educated you are or uneducated you are. You can choose to inhabit your life and the people in it as well, yeah. Rachel, when we were talking last night, you, you have a, a, a quote from Václav Havel that's very- I do, I do, I do. I have, um, I'm a collector of poems because I use them a lot when I do workshops or even talks. Um, so I have this huge file, it's like that, that, it's really, mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll just put my hand in there and pull out a piece of paper, right? <laughs> and just see what's there, right? And the piece of paper I pulled out was, I thought it quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, I don't know what the actual title of this is, but on my piece, my copy of this, there is a title. And it's, uh, and would you say his name again? I can't pronounce his first name. Hotchlove Havel. Hotchlove Hobble. And who is Havel. Yeah, who is he? Michael? He is a, uh, a a playwright, a Czech statesman, spent years in communist prisons under communism, was then released and became uh, the president of the Czech Republic, was very renowned. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to read it twice because usually when you read something that's true, it's like throwing cold water on, on somebody. They go, and then they haven't taken it in. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to stop, and then I'll read it again. Good. It's called, And a Thought for This Day. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul and not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. 
Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well, or a willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. It is hope above all which gives the strength to live and to continually try new things. A thought for this day. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It's a dimension of the soul and is not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well, or a willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather the ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. It is hope above all which gives the strength to live and continually try new things. That's so beautiful, Rachel. Well, my fellow travelers. <laughs> oh, I love that. I told you last night that I have a, a kind of a, a compact version of that, uh, which uh, is kind of a, a condensation uh, that Havel speaks of the distinction between optimism and hope, and that optimism is the belief that everything will go right. And hope, by contrast, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. So uh, he's such a great figure. Uh, our friend and colleague, Cynthia Lee, wrote a, a, a really nice uh, note. Healing in all dimensions, physical, emotional, and spiritual, has the same pattern, order, disorder, reorder. The question I have is, after society emerges from the lockdown period, how can we stay awakened my patients often tell me despairingly that change, healing, is slow and long. I remind them that change is fast. This period is a testament to that. It's solidifying the change or staying awakened to the change is what takes time and daily conscious practice. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Well, as we move into our last uh, eight minutes together, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to reflect on a bit? 
well, how are we going to end this relationship, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> I think the I've answer is, for years. <laughs> I think the answer is that whoever goes out first, the other one speaks at their memorial service. That's how we end That's it. it. <laughs> <laughs> what if I had told you that when you asked me that? Right. Years ago? <laughs> but you know what I really hope? I really hope that our memorial services, when they come, are not virtual, that they are in person, even if people are, cry. Yes. But there are people there and that we gather somehow, even if we need to maintain distance. I hope that when that moment comes, that uh, we're able to celebrate it. Yeah. And who knows, Rachel? Um, <laughs> both, we're both mystics in different ways. Who knows uh, whether this has been the only time we've been together and whether we're going to be together again. I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's really lovely. Yeah. Um, um, so, and thank I want you, to, Michael. This is such a yeah. wonderful thing that you're doing with the new school. I think it's just, it's just so life-affirming and so so important to people. It's just, and I know it's one of many things you do, and I am so grateful for the things you do. I really mm. am. And I want to just mention to all 250 people who were on the call, uh, we're so grateful to those of you who were able to contribute to keep this going, and I encourage you uh, to consider contributing if you haven't. Uh, we really uh, appreciate and need your support. And you know, Rachel, um, in closing, um, I want to do something strange. I did it at the beginning of the conversation with Francis Weller. His talk was called When the Bow Breaks, because it was about, uh, you know, the bow breaking. And so I sang the lullaby. Uh, and I want to sing it in closing. Yay! <laughs> it goes like this. Rock-a-bye, baby, on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come, baby, cradle and all. <laughs> you know, Rachel, I was reflecting, what a strange lullaby to sing to a beloved child. It's a strange lullaby. I wonder what its sources are. Well, I looked it up. It's, it's very ancient. It's very old. But isn't there the encounter between birth and death, between life and death, that you're singing to a baby who you love and you want to comfort them? And you are saying, you know, the wind will rock you, but when the bow breaks, the cradle falls, and down will come baby, cradle and all. What deep wisdom was contained in that ancient lullaby? It is the strength and the universality of being human. Hmm. And that's what I think we are discovering very slowly and painfully in this time, mm. the universality of being human. Mm. Yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you again for being my friend, my companion of almost 40 years and for doing this conversation with us. And please thank your cats for their cameo appearances. <laughs> 
We loved it. And uh, to all of you, uh, tune in next Friday. Every Friday, we're going to have some beautiful being with us. And um, remember, um, this is a time to live the way we choose to live. This is a time to do that. So thank you all. Blessings and love. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.